right, Frank. I hope you're ready for some delicious eggnog. Uh, dude, you, you've gone all out this year, man. You're gonna like this. This is an absolutely beautiful oil drum fire you put together here. Oh, of course. That's nice warm. Mean, it's, it's the toasty. traditional Christmas drum fire. Yeah, yeah. No, like uh, th- th- this is the coziest this back alley has ever been. Uh, I hope you're not um like very finicky about what kind of eggs they use to make the eggnog. Um, I actually have strange preferences there. Did you get the ostriches again this year? No, there was a. The eggs I had were all different shapes and sizes and colors, so I just put them all together. I'm not picky. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just, it is the season, right? Honestly, I'm just enjoying the excuse to get nogged up. Do you remember we talked about the, 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 the cock eggs? The yes. Energy? I found yes. a couple of them. So that's oh, the all the right. So this 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 will be, what is Yang Energy doing again? Does it make you really big on UBI? I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I'm iffy on that, but, like, I, I assume that's what it does, but, like, other stuff? Well, it, it increases fertility and increases okay. your interest in cryptocurrency. Okay, okay, okay. Well, eh, mixed blessing, but, you know, gotta take it to the good with the bad. So, it is Christmas, and I'm sure all of our listeners are... Are those carolers? Oh, God. Yeah, no. Did they find <laughs> us again? This, okay. It's the Cecilites. It's the Cecilites. They always come every year trying to exercise me with their carols because the charismatic the charismatic magic does not work on me because I, I have a, a debuff against charisma. I, I don't know how D&D works, so this joke is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that is sort of a running theme with uh, the Cecilites, that they think that uh, they're playing in a D20 game when, as we all know, the universe's metaphysics is actually a good old proper D100 system. So are you telling me, is, are you claiming that the, the early 2000s D20 trend was an attempt by the Vatican to nullify the occult powers of Dungeons & Dragons successfully? I, I'll be getting into this, actually. I mean, this works out well. The, the, the false attempts at exorcism aside, one of the reasons we, you know, usually kind of leave the studio and spend a, spend a couple weeks out here roughing it. How are you going to look at the stars unless you're lying in the gutter? Exactly. Go together, and like, talking cheese. The, the practical reason behind that is usually around this time of year, the CS lights track us down and start trying to exercise torps it again. And, you know, you'd think that after... Now, I think they're in the 30s at this point, right? Like they, They've been doing this for a while. I just... There's only so much green pea soup I can drink before Christmas. It, it's becoming annoying. So we tend to leave the studio to try to lose them. But I guess that's not working. But I have actually been doing a bit of looking into these guys a bit recently. So I guess it works out. And, you know, we had other plans for... We could have talked about the Jesus Christ Advisory Board. Jesus Christ um, Advisory Board, uh, Alex Abel's 1995 Christmas special. Oh, yeah. That's right. With Chewbacca for some reason. Hey, fuck it. Let's, yeah, let's talk about these guys. So, um, for those not in the know, the Order of St. Cecil is another one of those fucking groups that want to repress and suppress magic for whatever reason. A bit different from the sleepers, but similar vibes, a bit different motives, about as much of a pain in the ass. Yeah, but 
in a different way. I mean, yeah. the ass, it, it's all a pain in the ass. So you're going to call it Ce Cecil? As opposed to Cecil? You can call it Cecil, and I can call it Cecil, and then it covers both. It works. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Um, these guys have been kind of floating around the cult underground for pretty much as long as anyone can remember. And, you know, as far as uh, the Unknown Army's game goes, they, I believe they showed up in the first edition core book in one, in at least a little bit, yeah? Oh, on the first edition core book? Yeah. Um, all right. I know they're in the second edition, but the first edition, I think they're mentioned in, you know, they're one of those groups that are whispered about in hushed tones, like Ordo Corpulentus, where they hadn't really fleshed them out mm -hmm. in a significant way. Don't, don't talk about Ordo Corpulentus and flesh or track them. Well, I mean, they might deal with the Cecilites, so. What, you reckon? Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean they'll deal with the Cecilites? I mean, they're both into the whole. This is my body, this is my blood thing, right? That's true. That's true. That, that would be an interesting matchup, actually. I wouldn't mind playing, like, a Cecil-like game or a Cecil-like game where you're against autocopulentists because, like, dealing with the phasmata and, like, trying to exercise them and trying to figure it out, that would be... And even be worse than cannibals, they're Protestants. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, no. I just imagine, like, autocopulators finding where the Cicelites are and just, like, nailing a list of demands on the, on the door. <laughs> Fucking perfect. And these guys were given a bit more detail in the second edition core book and have been mentioned here and there since they're mo like, the most pen to paper that's been dedicated to them is in the online-only semi-official supplement Thin Black Line, which I believe is actually the last bit of official Unknown Armies content that was written before 3rd edition. But even then, it's only semi-official. Yeah, it was this weird teaser or this weird thing that decided to throw out in 2013. Being like, hey, remember Unknown Armies? And then they disappeared again. Yeah. And Chad Underkoffler appears to have done most of the writing for this. For these guys, um, both, I mean, he is the writer of Thin Black Line, but you see you in references to who's behind the Cecilite writing in the earlier books. It seems like usually they'd like consult under Koffler in some way whenever they're covering Cecilite content. Because no, no one, no one wants to be a co-writer with Chad under Koffler because of the implications. What's the implication? Well, if you've got like Dennis Detweiler and Chad Undercoffler, it would be the Virgin Detweiler and the Chad Undercoffler. <laughs> would be accurate. Fuck you. <laughs> oh my god. Undercoffler's done some pretty cool other shit. He did um, Swashbucklers of the Seven Skies and uh, Sorcerer of Zoe. Some like more prominent early examples of the indie RPG thing slash the story game movement. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He's been around for a while. A, a lot of people that wrote for UA would later go on to do story game stuff. And a lot of UA... Like, UA3 leans into the story game stuff a lot, but that lineage is there in the earlier traditions. And a lot of story games are very mechanically influenced by unknown armies in certain ways. It's just kind of that school of design wasn't really as developed in the mid and late 90s. 
Now, the gist of these guys is that they're a far-reaching, storied old order of Catholic priests who fight against the unnatural and try to suppress it. And usually this is done through the lens of demonology. And that the sea slides tend to kind of think of everything as expressions of old Scratch's influence on the world in one way or another. While demons are definitely something that shouldn't be fucked with and are very real, these guys are a bit too broad, well, in their view of the influence. They think adepts and avatars are both just people that happen to be possessed. Not possessed in the exorcist sense, necessarily, where, you know, they're dominating your mind. More possess, you know, possession can be a bit more symbiotic in certain cases. Or at least this is what these guys think. And that puts them in a very specific um, school of thought within, like, Catholic magic and Catholic demonology and things. Because Christian magic goes back a long way. Oh, yeah. And even Catholic magic goes back a long way. But these guys are very much of the... uh, the inquisitorial bent, um, and not, not all, which raises the question of, it would be interesting if um, there were other orders within the Vatican over history or and today, which also were aware of magic, but had a different view. Well, that's one of the interesting things about the Cecilites, actually, is that they were formed as sort of a group to watch the watchmen, so to speak, of the Inquisition. Hmm. You know, the Inquisition, witchcraft and magic were part of their purview, officially. And I'll kind of get into that more in a bit. But, you know, mostly they were there to root out heresies. And, as is the case of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, Muslims and Jews. Yes, because of the, uh, the Reconquista. Yes, exactly. The whole witchcraft thing wasn't a big part of the Inquisition's uh, purview. The witch trials and all that stuff, it was usually something that was done, um, that was a lot more of like, um, you know, mob action sort of deal. It is important to keep in mind that the Inquisition versus the Spanish Inquisition are two separate things. Yes. The church has the Inquisition, had the Inquisition as an entity, and then... The church in Spain started its own inquisition, kind of following the Reconquista. It's interesting as well, especially when people think of uh, people think of inquisitors, they think of them as being very much anti-witch, anti-magic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the like the uh, burning of witches and things is a relatively like it's an early modern phenomenon that yeah. was less common in the Middle Ages than people expect. I believe that started with the Malleus Maleficarum, but I'm not certain. I mean, a lot of witch hunting practice started with that piece of shit. Yep. Uh, that 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 book in and of itself could be a whole episode at some point, but uh, we're not going to be getting into that too much here. To get back to the um, Order of St. Cecil, the order was started because the Inquisition generally would deal, was a lot more boots on the ground and was dealing with more kind of low-level heresies. You know, merchants, peasants, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the Order of St. Cecil was kind of started as a internal affairs to deal with any of the witchcraft that the Inquisition may have been getting up to. 
as well as witchcraft among the nobility that the Inquisition was less likely to be able to touch because of the close ties between the Catholic Church and the nobility at the time. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's sort of the quasi-official statement of it. I looked into the history of the Order of St. Cecil recently, and I just found a lot of things that don't really add up entirely, specifically with regards to its founding. What, are you telling me a religious organization would lie about history? I'm shocked, too. Especially the Catholic Church. That's I thought they were better than that, but... Their Pope could do the salsa and everything. I had high expectations. The official narrative is that Pope Urban V started the Order of St. Cecil, partially as an internal affairs thing, partially to crack down on kind of Moorish and Saracen magic Mm -hmm. in Spain and around the European part of the Mediterranean. According to Thin Black Line, Pope Urban was worried that if enough European kings became aware that Moorish and Saracen magic actually worked, they'd resist further crusades. It might have been a product to an extent of the Islamic golden age, the scientific golden age, because it was in a period when things were getting a little bit postmodern and very urban, um, particularly in the Middle East. And when you go, when you have cities, as we've learned, that's when you get lots of magic. Yes. So it could have been that. It could have just been like lots of weird magic coming out of the Middle East that was freaking them out, freaking out the 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 the, the hicks up in in Europe. The reason I'm skeptical here is. Pope Urban was um, Pope in the 14th century. And during this period, the Reconquista had kind of died down a lot. Uh, It would pick up again at the end of the 15th century when the Moors were really, like, finally pushed out of Spain. But in the 14th century, there wasn't that much going on. And Pope Urban wasn't even a Pope that really crusaded that much. Uh, He tried and failed... To organize a crusade against the Turks. But the Turks are pretty different from the Moors. Yes, they're both Muslim, but that's those are two vastly different geopolitical entities. Yeah, but they didn't they didn't really make much of a distinction at the time. You know? Well, yeah, like right. I, I think there's something to be said about Islamophobia, but you know, the Pope was usually pretty politically savvy. There would be that's true. I, I think that the Pope would understand the distinction between those two groups. I remember this, I remember a quote reading a quote once that was like, all Moors are Turks, but not all Turks are Moors, or something like that, which like, have, like is how they thought of it. Yeah. Now, I do think that Pope Urban V was probably dealing with some magic, but that it was probably more domestic, more European that I was dealing with. And to mm-hmm. get into this... I need to get into what was going on with the papacy at the time. Uh, do you know about the Avignon Popes, Tormson? I know that the Avignon Popes were the, were the anti-popes. No, this was actually pre-anti-popes. Okay. okay. Was, I know there was, there was two popes. Yeah, no, the papacy two popes moved to Avignon, yeah. Yes, exactly. In the, um, in the early 14th century, and for running through a lot of it, um, the Pope's court moved from Rome to Avignon. Mm. And this was largely 
because of a conflict between the French crown, specifically under King Philip IV and the papacy. And following the death of Pope Benedict XI, Philip forced a deadlocked conclave to elect uh, the French Clement V as Pope in 1305, and then Clement refused to move to Rome. Him and the six popes after him held court in Paris. Many of them tried to return to Rome, including Pope Urban V, but they didn't really succeed for, like, almost a century. Yeah, all, all roadblocks lead to Rome. Now, Clement V is an interesting guy, because he pissed off a lot of people, some of which very well may have been mages. First of all, he violently repressed the Knights Templar, Possibly because of close connections with King Philip IV. So it wasn't the start of me. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, on the first day of Clement's coronation, Philip charged them with, and I quote, Ursary, credit inflation, fraud, heresy, sodomy, immorality, and abuses. Well, credit inflation. My God. Yeah, like, for those that don't know, the Knights Templar, yeah, they were a knightly order, but the big thing that they were were bankers. They had huge swaths of Europe in their debt. And to the point where the nobility eventually cracked down on them because they didn't want to have to pay it back. And there was a lot of loans that were taken out to do crusades and whatnot. They were investments. Yes. (laughs) Bankers and rumors of consorting with Satan go together like chocolate and peanut butter. So... I think we're all kind of vaguely aware of a lot of the rumors around the Templars, so I'm not going to dwell on that too much, but that is a very potentially magical group that Clement V almost immediately pissed off. Mm. Now, he also repressed the Duclinians, which were a Lombard Christian movement influenced by the Franciscans. These guys are kind of interesting because they're sort of like... um, Proto-Christian anarchists, in a sense. Um, They argue that apostolic poverty be practiced by the entire clergy. And to the point where they physically attacked the palaces of wealthy bishops, destroying the property, and in some cases the bishops and their staff. And in Mm. some cases the peasants that were living on the land of the bishops. They kind of killed a lot of people. Propaganda of the deed. And the Franciscans have a lot of rumors swirling around them about occult traditions and whatnot, too. They're kind of like the Jesuits in that aspect. So, you know, he may piss them off, too. And then also, um, Clement corresponded with the Mongols. Interestingly enough, uh, he was the Pope to send uh, John of uh, Monte Corvino to Beijing to preach in China. And he occasionally communicated with the Mongol Empire about the possibility of creating a Franco-Mongol alliance against the Muslims. I'm I'm back on on alternatehistory.com, I feel. Well, apparently the Franco-Mongol alliance was something that was attempted a few times in Pope Clement V's communications with the Mongols were actually one of the later examples of trying to organize that alliance. Mm. I think it's pretty safe to say that whatever happened, he pissed off some sort of wizard because he died when the house he was in was struck by lightning and burned to the ground. 
That's amazing. That's that's amazing. So like when the Pope dies by being struck by lightning, that tells you there's something going on, right? I mean, he might have pissed off Tengra, the god of the oh, yeah. blue sky. Oh, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, so it could have been the Templars, could have been the Dulkinians, hell, it could have been the Mongols. Perhaps he said something uh, something quite rude in one of his letters, and some of the shamans were like, we can't take this lying down. Well, was this the period of the of the Yuan Dynasty? Um, This would be the 14th century, so you... Yeah, I think... Yeah, would okay. be, wait. Yes, you could even posit or um, imagine... The, as some kind of interaction between the Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose and the Order of Successful. Well, they actually talk about that. They talk about that a bit in uh, Thin Black Line. Apparently around oh. this period, Sir John of Mandeville was fighting the Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose in Hangzhou. And that's why... Because Sir John of Mandeville for... In, in Hangzhou. Thank you. Hangzhou. Thank you. I apologize. You know the, uh, these pronunciations way better than I do. I was really stoned in Hangzhou because I was I took <laughs> I ate hash because um, I bought hash for some from a Uyghur bakery in Shanghai and then took the train nice. there because I was bored. And I just had a I just had an Edgar Allan Poe book and I got bored of it, so I decided to go into the, like the terrible like train toilet and eat this hash. And um, then I was too stoned. The taxi drivers were all insane. And I got lost wandering looking for my hostel around this place until I found two young soldiers and like uh, just like stonedly asked them like where to, where to go and, and then I found my way. And that's my story about Hangzhou. That's all I remember is being stoned and lost next to a beautiful lake until I found the PLA and the PLA saved me. <laughs> that or the Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose scrambled your memories because apparently that's something they can do. <laughs> Which explains why the travels of Sir John Mandeville, especially the second half, are apparently totally full of shit. I looked into that a bit. It was sort of like a Marco Polo sort of deal, like a travel log to the fabulous and mysterious Orient, except as scholars have later looked into John Mandeville's uh, writings, it seems pretty obvious that huge portions of it are copied whole cloth from other writers. So he probably... Never actually went there, though this document claims that the reason that so much of the writing is full of shit was because the Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose scrambled his brain. I, I, it could be a bit of both. It could yeah. be a bit of both. You know, I, I think we've all been in that situation where we have a looming deadline, our brains get a bit scrambled due to our conflicts with the strange cults, and then we're like, ah, oh, shit, okay, I need to come up with something to hit this, right? Okay, here's here's the campaign frame for playing like 14th century Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose. Okay, John da John Mandeville is here, and you have to bamboozle him with magical nonsense until he writes. Like so, to basically to like make sure his intelligence is useless. So you're putting your faces in like the chest and having dog-headed men running around and all this sort of stuff just to confuse him about the actual state of affairs. Fucking perfect. But keep in mind that this was actually before. Uh, the Order of St. Cecil was founded. This was happening around like the 1350s, and the Order of St. Cecil mm -hmm. isn't founded until 1369. But um, let's get back to these popes here, because one of the interesting things about Pope Urban is there's actually not much on record about him dealing with witchcraft and magic in any way. The only source I've been able to find on that 
actually was by uh, the well-known occult scholar Chris Relitz, which he brings up in his book, Antichrist Osiris, The History of the Luciferian Conspiracy. Mm, that's a good airport reading. If you can't trust a book with that sort of title, what can you trust? Mm. And he brings up in that that Pope Urban V was a known practitioner of magic, and he refuses to elaborate. Keep it mysterious. So, <laughs> very <Keep> mysterious. mysterious. <laughs> but one of the other Avignon popes did actually deal with witchcraft significantly, Pope John XXII. Now, Pope John XXII was the pope to follow Clement V after he was struck by lightning. John was born Jacques Duzet to a prominent merchant and baking family in Cahors. Studied medicine in Montpellier and law in France, yet could not read a single letter of French given to him. So, I'm sure he could read, I'm sure he could read a single letter. If you just gave him A, he'd be like, mm, I can guess. And the interesting thing about John the 22nd is he was the Pope to declare witchcraft heresy officially. And under the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. And before that, it was just discouraged. And this was in 1320, and this happened after a failed assassination attempt against him that involved poisoning and sorcery. Hmm. This is why you don't mix poisoning and sorcery. Just pick one and stick to it. Yeah, but a lot of those early pre-modern mages didn't really know that. You know, part of that ties in the alchemy and shit. I've just pissed off every Herpermancer who's listening. We'll be fine, I think. What are they going to do? Shed their skin at us? That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm in Australia. There's no snakes here. Well, you're immune to poison. That's something that happened. Like, that's, that's like one of the stat bonuses you get when you're born in Australia, right? So you can fight Platypie effectively. Yeah, no, that you earn that with oh, okay. uh, cask wine. Okay, I got you. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. It's something that and you what, what do you think the Vegemite is for? That explains a lot. And yeah, so John was like the guy who set the Inquisition policy on dealing with witchcraft. And he was warning people not to learn, teach, or practice magic and that anyone who ignored his warning would be excommunicated. So there was obviously a decent amount of witchcraft going on, probably in the court during this time period, for him to deem it necessary to specifically warn against that. Mm. The assassination attempt was, has a pretty interesting story behind it. In that, in 1317, just a year after um, John the 22nd uh, took the throne, Hughes Gerard, Bishop of Cahors, where I may remind you that John the 22nd grew up, was arrested on charges of trying to kill John through sorcery. And Gerard tried to poison the Pope after Gerard had been tried for embezzlement and thought he'd lost his case. You know, there's a lot of money issues going on here. And Gerard thought he was totally fucked. and was like, all right, well, I guess I need to hex the Pope. That's my only way out of this. I mean, yeah. It, sometimes, if you're going to be fu- if you're fucked either way. Yep. It's like that, it's like that, that Chinese story about the, uh, the two guards who, go, who were late to meet the Emperor. But the punishment for being late to meet the Emperor was death. And the punishment for killing the Emperor was death. So, might as well double down. Yep. 
And the lesson to be learned here is when you fuck up, just try to kill the guy above you. That's right. That's how it works in Google. Yep. And that's how it definitely works in Meta. Let's, let's get back to the papers here. So Gerard enlisted two members of the papal court to, you know, get some poison and wax figures with which to bewitch the Pope. And they were caught Ooh. with three wax figures of the Pope and two French cardinals, which they had hidden in loaves of bread and given to messengers to carry into the Episcopal Palace. That's just suspicious. Oh, yeah. No, like, if you see, if you catch anyone with a wax figure of you... That's, that's like putting like a, like a nail file in, in a pie and sneaking into the prison. That's the level we're dealing with here. Now, John was apparently a big fan of using these heresy charges against his enemies and used it several times against Franciscan and Italian political enemies. So, as far as the Franciscans, mm. I brought those guys up a bit before. The other key thing that John the Twenty Second was noted for was involving himself heavily with a dispute over the proper nature of religious poverty... That was taking place within the Franciscan order at the time. Mm. Uh, the spiritual Franciscans had a position of absolute poverty among the clergy. And John XXII was pretty strongly against this. So John was a big fan of charging his political enemies with heresy. Yeah, using the charge of witchcraft. And he, in fact, was the guy to write the first papal bull on the matter. Super Ilius Specula. Translates to upon his watchtower, which he issued in 1326, and remained an important part of legal apparatus against practitioners of sorcery for the remainder of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. It's possible that John just liked using witchcraft as a way to deal political enemies, but he did seem to be pretty sincerely... You know, he put a lot of ink to paper about this topic. He was, like, pretty sincerely convinced on the truth of this stuff. And, you know, there's a couple explanations for this. One, you know, God's messenger on Earth is by no means immune to cognitive dissonance. That sounds heresy. That sounds heretical. But it's also entirely possible that many of his political enemies were sincerely practicing witchcraft. And we know mm. from the redacted history of the occult underground that Paris was one of the underground's hotspots in Europe around this time. It makes sense. Yeah. So I'm thinking likely what's going on is that the papal court at the time got themselves involved with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, adepts and sundry mages. Pope probably owed a couple wizards a lot of money and was like, all right, well, I can deal with these guys somehow. Witchcraft is heresy right and they're like what no th there's no rulings on that like well i guess i gotta write the ruling then this seems like a good opportunity to deal with these guys i mean that that's that's a clever move yeah no it makes complete sense like oh witchcraft isn't heresy why the hell not this obviously should be heresy they're dealing with different gods i mean it looks like the the uh Avignon popes had a bit of a history of pissing off wizards if clement v is uh is anything to go off of I wonder if I could declare my my uh, creditors heretics. I do feel like the Australian government is probably heretical. Oh, well, the, the insurance agency is Druids, remember? That's right. That's right. I don't owe the insurance industry anything, but they are involved somehow. Now, John XXII died in a pretty, like, usual way. Just lived a long life and died of illness. Uh, his successor, Benedict the Twelfth 
who also grew up studying in Paris, made peace with the Franciscans, and was mostly interested in theology and trying to heal the Great Schism. How do you go from one pope who's, like, trying to, like, run around, like, declaring people heretics, and then the next pope is like, let's heal the schism? I mean, it's really not very consistent. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But, like, you see a lot of popes in this period trying to heal the uh, schism between East and West. And papal policy varied wildly from pope to pope. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, Benedict XII did pretty fine, and I'm wondering... If some of these wizards happen to be Franciscans. Because this would only be, you know, a century or so after the Cathars were wiped out. Mm. I would not at all be surprised if some of those Cathars ended up falling in, fleeing and falling in with other uh, more salt-of-the-earth heretical Christian sects. Crypto-Cathars are always fun. Yep. Clement VI... Following back the twelfth, in contrast to his predecessor, spent lavishly, uh, and in his own words, he claimed to have lived as a sinner among sinners, which is a great quote and a great excuse for spending money, and a great way to describe hanging out with a bunch of sketchy ass wizards. Yeah, like that would be a pope immersed in the occult underground, living as a sinner among sinners. That's a pretty good description, in my opinion. That is pretty cool. And that does remind me of um, the current Pope uh, formerly being a bodyguard at outside a salsa club. I wonder what, like, crazy occult underground of Buenos Aires Aries things that the current Pope saw or experienced. Now, he was followed by Innocent VI, professor of law before he was a Pope, another frugal Pope, another reformer. His big thing was trying to use a popular agitator, Cola di Rienzo, to leverage a return to Rome. But both died before that could be accomplished. Shift back to Pope Urban V, who was the second to last Avignon Pope. So it's kind of an alternating pattern here, where one Pope is a big spender, the other one stays frugal, and so on and so on. Now, what we're kind of seeing here is that the popes that are the big spenders tend to be the ones that are most worried about being killed by wizards. Hmm. Interesting. I'm thinking this either has something to do with the Templars or conflict with the Franciscans. These guys keep going to debt to Templar wizards or all their lavish spending is pissing off crypto-Cathars within the Franciscans. Who are then hexing the papacy in various ways and, you know, hitting, striking them with lightning and all that. So you've got, like, the Templar on one side being like, pay me back. And the Franciscan on the other side saying, you shouldn't have borrowed so much money, you, you profligate spender. Exactly. And in all this, Pope Urban is like, all right, I need to start the Order of St. Cecil. To keep an eye on the Inquisition and its excesses. And possibly his creditors. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at here is uh, I'm guessing that some in some way this point of history, the Inquisition was kind of butting heads with the Pope's authority in certain ways mm -hmm. and probably dealing with their own magic in one way or another because, uh, again, one of the stated reasons for the formation of the Order was to deal with the use of magic in the Inquisition itself. Mm. 
as well as among the nobility. So I'm guessing what's kind of going on here is that, especially in Paris, the nobility and the Inquisition and the occult underground are all kind of in bed with each other at this time. Mm. Urban V is like, we need to fucking deal with this. This is a problem. All right. Inquisition Internal Affairs. You guys, you're coming in. That's, that's a fun campaign uh, structure right there. Especially if you think of um, the Inquisition in this period as being more similar to like second ed sleepers and yeah. third ed sleepers. <clears throat> exactly. They want to repress magic so they can hoard it for themselves. As we know, Paris was a hot spot of the occult underground at the time, and I feel like it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to extend that towards Avignon. Sure, they're on opposite sides of France, but in, France was kind of like a cornerstone of um, intellectualism around this time. Yeah. So it would make complete sense for there to be a strong occult underground presence in Avignon at the time. And we see a lot less of this shit happen in the Pope following, who was the Pope to finally move the papacy back to Rome. Mm. Which... Rome isn't mentioned in the history of the occult underground in the time period. Assuming that the occult underground was actually pretty active in Paris, but not in Rome during this time period, it would make sense that the Pope would really push to get away from that sort of influence. Mm. And for the Order of St. Cecil to kind of, to allow Urban V's egress from the Parisian or broader French occult underground's influence... And by extricating himself from that with the help of the Cecilites, they're able to get back to Rome. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting parts of the Order of St. Cecil is St. Cecil doesn't actually exist. There was a St. Cecil, but he was a first century saint that had nothing to do with any Moors because... So, yeah, uh, Cecilius of Elvira. Yes, and yes. he had nothing to do with it. Uh, he was in Granada where the Moors would be, but he was of the first century, so he was more worried about like, the angry pagan government. Yeah, but the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, this is an official Catholic organization, but Cecilius of Elvira has never actually been canonized. He's like the patron saint of Granada, but he's not like a canon saint according to the Catholic Church. He's venerated, but not canonized. But I do think that the Order of St. Cecil actually does take its name from Cecilius of Elvira, but in a sort of interesting way. Because mm. Granada has a, one of the very important holidays there is the Fiesta of San Cecilio. And this is a celebration where large gr- crowds gather to celebrate the city's first bishop. And. The, this festival started as a way of preservation, propagation, and dissemination of the legend of St. Cecil as a way to redefine Granada's historic identity, replacing its Moorish past. Aha, uh-huh. so it was like a, the glorious past that, I get it, I get it, I see what's going on here. It was, it was um, some good old-fashioned uh, historical revisionism, but not really... Because it did happen, but they're re-emphasizing this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Enough for political purposes, not to the point where it's actually getting canonized. But, I mean, you know, the fact that this is an order dedicated to a non-canonized saint is very interesting. Especially a saint that was used for this particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of like an inside joke of... They knew early on 
that what they were going to be doing was rewriting history. That that is interesting. It's also interesting that as Cecilius of of Elvira, what connection does the Catholic Church have to the Mistress of the Dark? That might be for another episode. I think you can see this to a certain extent even in the modern day. Like what we see in Thin Black Line is that these guys were dealing with Jill DeRay. Uh, they fought against the Mayans, apparently. Like I, I which is that one line. I mean, that's cool, but I, I need more than that. It's a very glib sort of line, yeah. To say, and generally speaking, when like it's it's the Spanish were fucking the Mayans up at this time period. Uh, although the Mayans did hang on for a while longer than the Aztecs. But yeah, I, I, I'm generally on the Mayan side in that particular battle, I feel. I feel that the, the kind sorcerers... Kind of same. Though this implies, like, did Tetno Chitlan have an occult underground? That's the Aztec. Oh, fuck, that's um, right. Oh, God, what's the Mayan city? Uh, Tikal, I think? Yeah, there's, there was a few. There was a lot of, a lot of Mayan cities. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't at their peak. Um, when the Spanish were there. Yeah, yeah, they were already kind of on their slide down. Yeah, but there's still lots of Mayan people. And, like, there were still towns and, like, small cities and things. That would be a whole campaign. But the, the order of fighting against Mayan magic is probably just, like, stabbing, like, shamans who are already dying of smallpox and yeah. then burning all the books. And that's not, it's not really a, a great, like, heroic battle. Unless the order know, is the like, least interesting part of that sentence. Tell me about the call called underground. That I want to hear about. Yeah, actually, like that would be interesting, especially in the early like Spanish occupation of Mexico period when it was like very sort of like there was when uh, Tenochtitlan was becoming Mexico City. Like there would be some, and probably still is. Mexico City would have some like deep, deep, interesting veins of. Aztec and Holtec magic going through it. And this does tie in, like, if you get to tie in the Order of Successor with Mayan magic, you could tie in, and in a, in a modern sort of way, you could also tie in um, liberation theology. So that, that, that the actually area. will be coming back into that a bit, because um, one of the canon uh, Cecilites kind of falls into that category a bit. Mm, mm. Yeah, what I'm getting for this is like, all right, there's your campaign right there. The Mesoamerican occult underground versus the Order of St. Cecil in the 1500s. Yep. But yeah, apparently like, these guys also dealt with Gilles de Rey. Apparently it seems like these guys are mostly centered around France and Spain. That, to a certain extent, appears to extend into the modern day where these guys seem to be most powerful in Europe and elsewhere seems to more be sleeper mm -hmm. territory. What are, you what are you talking about, Willis? There wasn't a sleeper. No, I'm talking in the modern day. Oh, the modern day. All right. When I look at like the world and where I, I assume the order of success is more prominent um, compared to the sleepers, like for example, if I'm looking at Asia, I just assume the Philippines is lousy with Cecilites. Um, anywhere and like maybe parts of um, maybe like Macau even because they would have come through with the Portuguese colony and like parts of you know anywhere that the Catholic Church had like a bit of sway. You get some Cecilites, or you could like argue for the existence of some Cecilites versus, um, especially. I, I've always um, wanted to do that because I've thought some ideas of like running like um, Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose, taking back um, Hong Kong um, nice. from the Sleepers, but also like um, Brotherhood of Harmonious Repose taking back Macau from the Cecilites and finding it much more difficult than Hong Kong would also be an interesting twist. No, I could. That'd be a fucking great game, especially, especially with considering how like. 
corporate like sanitized Las Vegas Macau is. It's an interesting setting for that kind of thing. Oh yeah, no, that'd be fucking great. Any chance to de- further develop the Brotherhood of Harmonious Oppose, really, because God, that's underwritten, as is in the current books. Yeah. So, it seems like these guys are mostly in France and Spain, so my guess is that for most of these guys' history, they were either fighting against the Parisian slash French occult, undergr- occult underground and also dealing with to a certain degree, Moorish magic in the Iberian Peninsula. Yep. But I think mm-hmm. they weren't really formed to deal with the latter. They were formed to deal with the former no. because, as I'm seeing, the papacy was very closely fiscally involved with the occult underground around that time period. And then just later on, it's like, oh, hey, yeah, we have this order of witch hunters. Might as well send them to kind of back up the uh, later portions of the Reconquista. Justify our budget. Spanish Inquisition, yeah. Yeah, does make sense. But, like, their history is pretty sparsely sketched out after that, you know. Jill DeRay, some stuff about the Jesuits. There's the events of the Ascension of the Magdalene, which they're involved with. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Let's not dwell on that too much. But I do want to bring up one of the two canon uh, Cecilite NPCs that we have statted, which is uh, Father Giacomo, a Neapolitan priest who had, according to Ascension of the Magdalene, the ability to grant men the strength of bulls, paralysis, locating hidden objects, and had on his person tinctures Ooh. that granted him levitation and flight. Man, that early modern magic was weird. Well, at least according to his D20 stats. His uh, his UA stats are a lot... Uh, they're, they're a lot lower level. Oh, right. This all ties into my theory. Yeah. Yeah, the theory is like, these these guys think they're in a fucking D20 game. They don't understand that that the world actually operates on a bespoke D100 system. That's right. This is just like the Delta Green agents who, who think they're in Delta Green, but they're not. They're in the Anunnaki, and they're fucked. Uh, actually, less fucked, arguably. A lot of what they kind of get up to does seem to be around France. They deal with a few cases of uh, demonic possession around France, specifically a case involving um, one uh, Father Louis Gaffridi, who a lot of nuns under his tutelage had to be exercised because somehow the nuns kept having sex with him. Somehow. And he did confess to devil-worshipping sorcery. Yes, I'm assuming after some waterboarding. With wine. You know, after a brief uh, trip around the rack, yeah. A bit of, a bit of the old uh, sizzle and poke. But yeah, mostly they seem to be sticking around France, dealing with um, modern magic a bit. Barely, from like the 1700s to the 1900s, they're barely sketched out. Like, this timeline given in Thin Black Line it mentions the fucking ratification of the Constitution of the United States for some fucking reason. Maybe it's relevant. This is the sort of thing when it's like things that don't make any sense. You're like, hmm, it must have something to do with the Cecilites. Well, they do. Okay, they do bring up that they fought a lot against the modernist schools of magic, which mm-hmm. like mechanomancy and bibliomancy. All they do, they, this is a, they're talking about, they do mention the path of indelible liberty. So, so some sort of freedom-based magic, which is interesting. It's, it's, it's the magic of a, a constitutional government. 
Oh, uh, what I'd kind of think of that would be like the magic, like some sort of magic school involving laws and the breaking thereof. Well, there you go, constitutional government. It's the constitution as a sacred document. And maybe like the way you get a major charge of that school is you are closely involved with the ratification of a law, which you then break. I don't know if it, yeah. Hmm. Like, uh, that's an interesting paradox for a school, the reinforcement of laws through breaking them. Yeah, but I think with Zeitgeist of the Era, I'm more attracted to this idea of, like, these deist wizards who are yeah. riffing, riffing off the fact that, like, by establishing, like, a, a constitutional framework, they're going against... A constitution as a sacred document is, like, a repudiation of, like... In a way, it could be seen as a repudiation of the, the Bible as a sacred yeah. document, and also a repudiation of, like, the divine right of kings and things like that. It's interesting. It's, it's sort of like a, a, a precursor to, like, the whole idea of, like, if God was dead, we'd have to invent him sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, how would you see a freedom-based magic school, where, like, freedom is sort of the key running theme of it? Well, that could be... We could see it in different ways, it's because the way they describe it is freedom in quotation marks, which is interesting. Um, yeah. And it's also I want to focus on like the fact that it's called the path of indelible li li uh, liberty. Maybe we should maybe we should think about this and come back on the fourth of July. Hmm, there's an idea. Since, we, since I've been polluting the podcast with Australian stuff. Well, speaking of which, it seems like in the 20th century, most of what they get up to is around the United States. You know, Jack Parsons gets brought up. Though for some reason he's called John, I guess Jack was a nickname. You know, right? No one knows him as John Whiteside Parsons. Yeah, it's it's Jack. We all know him as Jack, the fucking Thelemite rocket scientist who got cuckolded by L. Ron Hubbard. Of course. If he's going to call him John, why didn't he just do the whole way and call it Lafayette Ronald Hubbard? It, that would be consistent and also funnier. Uh, so yeah, Jack Parsons gets brought up. Anton LaVey, Falconelli, you know, sort of classic 20th century magic shit. Like, the most details we have is, okay, apparently the Order of St. Cecil stole Anton LaVey's remains and replaced them with uh, Folger's Instant Coffee. That's, that's, that's pretty great. That All right? That's fun. That's fun. But it's like, you know, that's kind of the issue of the Order of St. Cecil in, in that all of, every interesting thing they do ends with, and then they burned it. Yep. And then apparently in 06, they helped suppress a zombie outbreak in Sydney. Now, that, that is something I'm just like, what the hell is he talking about? And I looked like, like, uh, 2006, like, Sydney, and there's nothing really like riots or disturbance or whatever. And it just goes back to the, it, I just, it, I, the first thing I get is the uh, 2005 Cronulla riots in December, which were a race riot between um, Anglo-Australians and Middle Eastern Australians. Oh, um, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. does this have something? To do? It was like egged on by shock jocks and the tabloid media. It was a big, it was a big mess. And there's this um, interesting movie I want to watch on uh, Netflix. Uh, I can talk more about it later, but I don't really want to talk about it because I'm just like, why? What is this? How did, does this connect to a zombie outbreak? Did, did did they do something? Did one side or both sides do something? It um, it began as like um, a fight between these um, uh, Lebanese kids and some lifeguards, and it, it grew into a ridiculous. A big thing. But what does it have to do with zombies the next year? It has to have something to do with zombies. Or maybe it was... I don't know. In 06, there are no riots in Sydney that could be plausibly labeled... Or no zombie outbreaks in Sydney that could be plausibly I mean, labeled were, as riots. I'm trying to find, like, Sydney... 
2006, just like unrest or something, and it just goes back to Cronulla. I, I feel bad. We're back to we're back to fucking Australia. Uh, but it is a, it's a weird line. It's a weird yeah. line. What is this zombie outbreak? Uh, I, it makes me wonder if it's some like uh, a, a sneaky Chad Undercoffler joke, um, a, a, like a like a, a internal reference or a personal reference. To yeah, something. something he ran or something. Because yeah, it does seem like Undercoffler is the main guy behind the Cecil shit. Oh wait, okay, there was. Oh, I should have just searched for zombie. Um, there was the first Sydney zombie walk held in 2006. <laughs> All right. I, well, I, at least that's that's the cover, right? I, I I guess I should have been more literal. I I assumed zombie outbreak was cover was something, but it was like a, a it, it was a literal zombie lurch. Um, All right. But it was just it's just what it, yeah okay. Uh, apparently the media left out of the bit where a bunch of Padres showed up and mowed that mowed everyone down. They were just like this. This was was this pre Walking Dead? Yeah, I think so. And like how we kind of usually see these guys depicted are as like you know sort of the classic gun toting Padre, right? Yeah. Which UA needs a group like that. Every urban fantasy game worth its salt needs a framing device to play a. Padre with a shotgun. It's true. It, it, it's, it's required. Now, there, there is an argument to be said because people do criticize the Order of Successful for being a little bit boring, a little bit yes. like mundane. But the argument in favor of that is it's a nice juxtaposition with just the insanity of the Ananami setting. And yeah, but you can easily import the blander shit from other games, you know? Yeah. Like, I think you can have that gun-toting priest thing, but put a more interesting spin on it. And that, and just so much of this Order of St. Cecil shit, it just sounds like warmed over Dan Brown crap, where it's like, oh yeah, of course there's some secret papal order dedicated to fighting the supernatural that's existed for hundreds of years. Every game has something like that. It's not that undercover's fault that Dan Brown, like, just a re- reheated Holy Blood, Holy Grail. This was written in 2013, Torch. Oh, yeah, but no, it, it was clearly, like, being sitting in, like, a file folder for a while, I feel. Yeah, I don't know. It's just the randomness of its release. It, it seems like Chad was probably like, come on, Atlas, come on, come on. And they're like, fine. We'll get one piece of art done for this. You'll throw us to the design team. And then they'll repeat, they'll repeat it throughout the book. Do they even have this guy named? He's just Thessalite number one. I don't know. Um... With a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other. I mean, it's a good picture. It's a good. It's a, it's a, it's good, right. it's a good picture. It's a good picture. But I think there's way. I think there's stuff in the Order of Saint Cecil that can be emphasized to make these guys a bit more interesting than just another urban fantasy role playing game. Secret Catholic order that fights demons. Mm-hmm. Those are dime a dozen. They have. So. The Order kind of categorizes its encounters with the unnatural in three different ways. There's hauntings, which are pretty typical ghosts, poltergeists, and this other shit. Possessions, which are, you know, demon possessions, but they also, again, consider basically any sort of adept or magic user to be under possession. And typically how we see possession depicted, specifically like, you know... Christian demonology possession depicted in media is like the demon completely overwhelms the will of its host. And if you, if you look at the mechanics of how demons work, like they're all about urge. And I could yes. easily see how someone could 
make a connection with the obsessions of adepts becoming overwhelming, just overwhelming their entire life. So I can definitely see why people, like they think that it's it's a demon because it looks like it. Adepts, sure, but they also think avatars are uh, possessed, and tons of avatars are by no means obsessed with their avatar path. Like, surely the Catholic Church is lousy at all levels with unconscious avatars of various things. Oh, yeah. So maybe it's certain avatars. Well, they just kill... When, when it's done through pair, remember, it's just charismatic. When, when, it's, when it's framed through the imagery of Christianity, then it's totally cool. Don't worry about it. Unless it's bad heretical Christianity that wants to redistribute property or get rid of it. They have three boxes they put everything in, and they lose a lot of nuance in the process. And they deal with possession in a very interesting way. Because their exorcisms involve intense psychotherapy. Well, if someone goes in for possession, goes into the Cessalites for possession, their behavior, their diet, and their guests are heavily restricted. And exorcisms are surprisingly effective, even against avatars and adepts, just because of that situation being a pretty effective way to skew someone off an avatar path or prevent an adept from getting charges and... In 2nd edition, if someone got enough failed notches that they gained in insanity, they could change their obsession. Hmm. Does that work with adepts, though? It does. Interesting. And here's the thing, right? The exorcism involve intense psychotherapy. Their behavior, diet, and guests brought in are heavily restricted. Sometimes this is done against the possessed's will. What does this sound like to you? That's like you're programming. It sounds like you're being committed. It sounds like you're getting institutionalized. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. And it says in the second edition core book that at least a quarter of the Cecilites are psychologists and psychiatrists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. The whole demon fighting shit is only part of this. I think another big chunk of these guys is just the psychiatric study of demon possession. That's interesting. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, because that is a big part of, like, mundane uh, demon possession exorcism is, like, like they'll do all the psychological things first before they, yeah. they start the Christian magic. But to the point where a fucking quarter of their group, at least, is psychologists and psychiatrists. That's mm. crazy... For, like, a demon-fighting Catholic group, right? Yep. Like, I was looking into it a bit. It does seem like the Jesuits have a bit of history with sort of proto-psychology. Now, mm. Freud was very anti-religion. Basically considered zealotry and a neurosis. Yep. But, I mean, the modern Pope is actually very big on psychology. Pope Francis has gone on record saying that when he was young, a psychiatrist helped him a lot. And in 2019, began pushing for a policy of having priests. It hasn't been implemented yet, but he's kind of pushing to get this policy of getting priests to undergo psychological testing to try to prevent the ordination of problem priests. Hmm. That's interesting. So the Catholic Church, especially in the past hundred years or so, has done a lot to try to kind of square the circle between themselves and modern psychology. Mm. 
That's interesting. And I we're seeing that show up in these guys, and that makes a lot of sense. If you spend a lot of time studying demons, you eventually you're inevitably gonna come to the conclusion that a lot of this shit isn't demonic possession. I've got a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is um, the idea of um, priests uh, studying psychology and psychiatry is very interesting, but it's also because of the order of synthesis always kind of under, uh, like it, it should be a bit understaffed. I feel uh, it should it, it should be yes. And I do like the idea of them like because they have this psychological view of things, like they want to check. I like the idea of them recruiting nominally catholic or even outright non-catholic um psychiatrists because they're good at dealing with they found that there's a like a particular like a secular psychologist who has a good track record of dealing with demons um, yeah. and then they're like yeah. you come and work for us come and work for very good at separating the wheat from the chaff in that case yeah. and that's actually like one of my issues with these guys in that depictions in the second edition core book versus thin black line differ in some pretty important ways mm. Which kind of ticks a few skepticism boxes for me, but also just makes it more confusing. Like, the original Splat book depicts them as moderately well-equipped, yep. close to the Catholic Church, with, like, a closely monitored budget and dwindling membership of only, like, 200. Right. And the Thin Black Line shows them as, like, these extremely well-equipped badasses that are super close to the church, have a blank check black budget, and membership <laughs> over 400. Like, twice the size. Well, yeah, Second Ed was a little bit schizophrenic in that sense of, like, one, not wanting these groups to be too too powerful, but also wanting them to be badass. And it, it causes these sort of things to pop up. Well, the main thing that they're kind of clear, characterized with in the Second Edition is their archives are extremely extensive, and that gives them an edge over, say, the Sleepers. Yeah. They've been around for a long time, and they have a lot of books. Now, they do simply say that the signal-to-noise ratio... In that library is really bad. Oh, sure, but like signal to noise ratio in any like occult library is really bad. So <laughs> it is specifically compared to the old Mac attacks mailing lists in quality. So but, and yet there was like again Mac attack mailing lists had more noise yes, had more signal exactly. as well. That's the thing. It's just figuring out how to separate the noise from the signal. And if these guys have been around for this long and have dedicated all this time to the academic and this scientific study of demonology in comparison with psychiatry, they're probably getting pretty good at that. I, I, I do feel that with any kind of occult underground, um, like tomes or library or mailing list or anything, most attempts to re like separate the signal from the noise or reduce the amount of noise just inevitably also reduce the amount of signal because of how this shit works. Yes. Well, and we can see that in the way that they they kind of force everything into the three boxes of hauntings, possessions, or, and I didn't bring these guys up before, incarnations, which is just, all right, this is a demon walking the earth. It's anything that seems especially unnatural, and this needs to be killed immediately. This has led to the Order of St. Cecil ending up on the bad side of a lot of epideromancers and a lot of automatons. Sure. They have a history of kind of killing. But this is the thing, like, it is, it's like, it makes them, it makes sense in some way for, like, a certain vision of the Order of St. Cecil, but it makes them a little bit more boringer than they could be. Like, for example, you were mentioning before about yeah. how, yeah, like, the in second ed, like, psychiatry, like, like, being committed can change the obsession. Like, I like the idea of, like, they just tweak the obsession, like if, for example, like they like maybe they've gone back to the old ways and they're like, let's try to let's try to like catholicize this magic 
And so they're just trying to, they have a list of different ways that like, like for example, in the way like Aztec gods were recant, like canonized as um, Catholic saints. So the veneration of saints in various parts of the world is clearly just a cover for like pagan gods. Um, imagine if they could do that with adepts. We'd be like, okay, dips and mansa, you, you can only drink the blood of Christ. But if you just drink the blood of Christ, then, then you can be a dipsomancer because it, it's good. It's good Jesus blood magic now. <laughs> well, no, and they specifically say that they have, like, in their network, reformed adepts that they've cured. Yeah, but that's... And that they bring on as, like, consultants when dealing with the cult underground shit. And it would be more interesting to me if they were continuing to practice magic, but they've brainwashed them enough that they are doing it in a yes, very Catholic way. I agree. You're an epidermomancer, you need to die. Oh, you're an epidermomancer that self-flagellates? Cool. Awesome. Yep. Join the club, buddy. Yep. And also, I'm thinking, like, yeah, they destroy any incarnation as an abomination onto the Lord, but it's I I really want a, co- a clockwork priest. A clockwork priest sounds like real fun. But, well, and specifically, I think the key thing to emphasize here is that they brainwash people into just recontextualizing their already their... Adept obsession into Christian terms. Yeah. Like the Christian, like, you know, these Christian adepts totally believe all this shit now still. Mm-hmm. And Entropomancer is just like, Jesus, take the wheel. So, like, having a few of those guys in there is good. Like, they do bring up a couple adepts. And the interesting thing here is there is the Charismata. The Order does seem to have, like, some acknowledgement that there are legitimate miracles, and that's what they call Charismata, which are people with... They're basically adepts that are obsessed with Christianity and get magic from it. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this write-up is it's a blatantly unfinished magic school. Oh, yeah. It it, it doesn't have a, t- a paradox or a taboo. Therefore, I... I doesn't I, have a paradox. It only has minor charges. Okay, you can speak knowledgeably on any subject. You can gain courage. Like, you know, th- th- these these aren't that evocative. Or, like, you temporarily gain sight. You know, like, the, the, this is, like, a paint-by-numbers adept. In, in, in like, th- third edition terms, it would be make more sense to have these be supernatural identities. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it does bring up the possibility of significant and major charges. S- generate a significant charge unknown, contain a demon in your head for three exchanges without becoming possessed? Maybe? Question mark? They, even the fucking people writing this shit doesn't, don't know what they are. And generate a major charge, be crucified for a day? I don't know. I mean, it's way too easy to be crucified for a day. I mean, they do it in the Philippines all the time. Well, they do it with the ropes, right? Oh, they that's true. You have, to be, you have to be fully... They don't do the nails. The ropes are how it was actually done, historically. The thing about the nails, ironically, is it made it a less terrible way to die, because you just bleed out before, you know, you died from slow asphyxiation as your spine breaks and your ribcage descends and all that goodness. Mm. I do feel that there is a space for, like, religious magic. Like, a, a, a magic of religious taboo. That'd be cool. An adept school that's obsessed with Christianity and the way they express that is by sinning over and over again. And that's that's kind of a classic sort of thing, um, not just in Christianity, but other religious groups as well. It's yeah. like those, um... Oh, what are the name of those dudes in India that, like, just... Uh, just uh, the Agori tribe. That'd be a good way to sort of broaden that idea I brought up earlier of a adept school dedicated to breaking laws and reinforcing those laws through that. It doesn't necessarily need to be like 
laws of the state. It could be laws of faith. I, I, I like, okay, now that just makes me think of like, a, 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 imagine an adept stool that's like, it's, it's sort of like the D.A.R.E. program or like um, anti-drug propaganda. And so you just, you have to like take drugs and like very theatrically and publicly have a bad time to turn people away from drugs. Like you have to like... <laughs> About having a bad trip in public. Yes. Basically right. you have to show the folly of sin. And the only way to show the folly of sin is by sinning. There's your paradox. Now, the fucked up thing about this charismatic thing is that it says in this fucking, in the thin black line that there's only three charismatics alive in the modern day. The Order is aware of two of them. Cut, fuck off. There's way more of yeah, them it, than it's that. It's kind of boring to like, yes. And, and, and the other one, it could be you. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. The third living charismatic is a mystery. and may not even be Christian. Whoa. I do like this Father Keanu Johnston guy. Like a, a, a Hawaiian Christian priest that has charismatic holy it's powers. Cool because he's a, he's a young Hawaiian man. That's, that's, it's, it's interesting, but he needs more. And he spends his day running around the world and smiting things. I mean, that's pretty cool. It's, it's, the, it's a solid foundation for a character. I will say that much. I think this Thin Black Line document is underbaked and honestly, in certain respects, full of shit. I mean, all, everything the Fed's right is full of shit to an extent, but we can't blame, we can't blame Chad for this. It says straight up, like, all right, there, there's a Cecilite identity. There's a Cecilite identity that stats in second edition, and I think you could probably sign this up in third edition without too much difficulty, because a lot of these abilities kind of match. The, the Cecilite skill... Where's the Cecilite skill? Oh, is it? Oh, it's a... Where's the Cecilite skill in second ed? It's a mime skill. It lets you replace the general education skill okay. with your Cecilite skill. Uh, it gives you the exorcism ritual. So I'd probably... How I'd do that in third edition would be... Substitutes for knowledge. Cast rituals. And you start with knowledge of exorcism. And vague protection against... Supernatural. And I know you're not supposed to allow supernatural identities like vague protection to also sub for abilities, but it fits too yeah. well. I really dislike the whole thing of like, all right, every supernatural identity needs to have, provides gutter magic and cast rituals. No, there's tons of stuff that aren't going to give you shit about ritual knowledge or even gutter Especially magic. Especially because uh, gutter magic isn't like you can have a mundane identity with gutter magic. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it does seem a little bit silly. It doesn't have, it shouldn't be all the time. It does. I think they do say like unless the GM says no or something like that, but I don't know. There should be something that could replace it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I know. Again, I just think broadening what supernatural identities can have is more interesting. Yeah. Just treat them like any other feature, to a certain extent. As I'm checking like Second of Dead, looking for this thing, I will say that the, I don't mind um, Father Jose Carrillo. He's cool. Father Jose is a lot of fun. The fucking uh, ex-Zapatista, uh, yes. gun-toting, mostly pacifist communist padre. Yes. This is what I was kind of getting at when I was bringing up the liberation theology stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems obvious that the Order of St. Cecil has a history of a lot of connections with these sorts of things. That guys. makes it a lot more interesting. But what strikes me uh, especially is the fact that in the art, he is pictured like looking concernedly at the members of Satan's chosen temple. And I've always yes, like that's a great point. Yeah. I've always thought that they should be there should be a connection there. Uh, I would love to see like um 
like one of the like Rebecca de Gaulle is now is now a Cecilite or something like that in, in the modern age or something. They're brought up in Thin Black Line, but it's literally just not on the Order's radar. Once they are, though, it will be quick and messy. That is the quote. I mean, that's 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 not as that's not as interesting as uh, Jose coming in. Guys, you can synthesize these two things. I'm a communist and a demon fighting Catholic communist for Jesus. You can do both. Communist for Jesus. I do like the idea of um, like Jose desperately trying to protect the Satan's Chosen Temple from like being completely wiped out by the rest of the Cessalites and being like, no, 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 please don't. I mean, like what these guys, like as given in Ten Black Line, this is like the worst version of Del- the program in Delta Green. Yeah. Right? Burn the books, everything. And I get that for this. I, I think the angle to emphasize with these guys, to make it more interesting, is this whole thing of, of them trying to square the circle between Christian theology and the reality of what they see in the occult underground. Mm. And to the point where they will force that square peg into a round hole in a way that weirdly works more often than not by like converting adepts and shit. Mm. I think a lot of the ideas that Thin Black Line has about their structure is kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to go back to this idea of the origin of the name. One thing I've just noticed, actually, in Second Ed, is the fact that throughout the text, they cannot seem to decide on whether it's Cecilites or Cecilines. Or Cecilites or Cecilines. And I was just thinking, hmm, is that could that be a, a secretive evidence of... Uh, like a schism or at least a um, a difference in ideas, you know? I don't think it's even that. I think it's less organized than that. I don't think these guys... I think these guys are like an order that exists on paper but probably hasn't like really existed as an organized group in a couple... for a couple hundred years. I mean, that's fun if you're running a campaign where like Jose is like starting to... like trying to start up the, the Cecilites again or something like that. These guys' origin is rooted in historical revisionism. Of course they're going to make themselves look more well-equipped than they actually are. Of course they're going to establish this huge institutional continuity going back centuries that doesn't actually exist. I think probably what these guys have is an extensive library and an asylum somewhere in the French countryside. Mm-hmm. And then everything beyond that is pretty ad hoc. Yeah. That is good because it leaves a lot for the GM to play around with, but it gives us a little nice little foundation. I do like, um, I do like asylum, Catholic asylum in a, the bucolic uh, southern French countryside. That's fun. Where they're converting adepts to a more Christian tinged version of their uh, adept schools. It's, it should be like an asylum inside an old uh, Templar stronghold that was built on top of a a, a Cathar. Like, settlement. Like, have some layers there. And, like, the other thing is they have these historical historic links with Christian anarchism, and we know that some of their members are still totally cool with that sort of shit. Mm-hmm. And one of the fun things with the psychiatry stuff and them being in France is that in, like, the 60s, you know, Foucault, Deleuze, uh, Guattari, all of those, like, sort of leftist, anarchist, anti-psychiatrists could have heavily influenced these guys. Mm. Do you know Deleuze and Guattari? I do not. They're famous uh, French post-structuralist philosophers. They're most known for anti-Oedipus, capitalism, and schizophrenia. Deleuze is a philosopher, and Guattari was a class practicing psychiatrist. 
And specifically, Guattari ran um, a clinic called Le Bord, which is um, a clinic in a village in France where essentially the patients run the asylum on purpose. Mm. Founded on the principles of democratic centralism, a rotating basis for the division of labor and anti-bureaucracy. The idea is you go there and find a community that helps you. They put on plays every year. And that I think that would work very well for this adept asylum idea, right? I, I think these guys should still have sort of that angle of... Because it says they will straight up kidnap people they deem possessed if they think it's bad enough. Mm-hmm. This asylum slash library slash church is like a mecca for christian adepts that's very interesting a mecca for christian adepts is very fun too so you're you're impounded here against your will and sure there's a bunch of priests telling you like no you're wrong the reason your magic works is because it's given to you by god but you also have a bunch of other adepts saying this too interesting because usually like adepts will fight over this sort of thing but if you can give it like a nice um, spin to it, well, and that's the that's the, that's the way you can have all of these different types of adepts working together when normally they'd be at each other's throats, because all of this is just a reflection of the wholeness of God, obviously. Yep. Until you have a schism, and then and then it's real bad. Well, I I think there's kind of probably two parts. Is like the adept group. The Christian adepts, and then there's, you know, the gun-toting padres, and they work together to fight the supernatural and to try to bring the possess exercise the possessed. Sometimes they change the people's obsession so that they're just no longer adepts, and that's like, okay, you're obviously possessed because this exorcism worked, and your magic powers no longer work after the exorcism, so therefore, yeah, it was from a demon. But the adepts that still work after the exorcism, they're like, oh, no, obviously this, these are powers granted to you by God. Mm. Again, like a lot of this is like taking the reality of the cult underground and jamming that square peg into the round hole of Catholic theology. And they've gotten pretty good at that over the years, I think. Mm. And psychiatry has kind of allowed them to bridge that gap. That makes a lot of sense. Now, there's also a way I think you could pull in some certain kinds of unnatural entities especially automatons and maybe even non-entities and things things that are more human looking even or even go wilder and go with uh unspeakable servants and things because the semi-official uh line from the uh, jesuit father jose funes the director of the vatican observatory in 2008 who was asked about alien life um, he was asked, does it conflict with uh, Catholic theology? And he, uh, he quoted the parable of the shepherd who left his flock of 99 sheep in order to search for one that was lost. And he says, well, maybe it's the human race who's the lost sheep and everyone else. Because he does say that it's possible that if aliens did exist, not, it doesn't mean it, um, if it goes against God's uh, plan, but it might mean that all these aliens, they just simply don't need redemption because they're already redeemed. Yeah, we're contacted by the Federation of Planets, and it turns out they're all Catholic. That's right. And so I could see earlier in history, before the people were talking about aliens, they're being like, okay, we, we want to kill these demons and these monsters, but this mechanical man, he's just so amiable. There, that's the thing. There is like a history of them specifically running into automatons a lot and taking them out. They really seem to not like automatons. You know, uh, Ivan? Yep. He's run into the Order of St. Cecil a couple times. 
you know, probably that comes down to they aren't big on the fact that he's a literal fuck machine. That might be it. It could be like how you have the common theme of like the, the homophobic senator de- being found like cheating on his wife with a rent boy. But it's like that for the Cecilites. Yeah. It's just there's one order. <laughs> They're all clockworks and they, they, they just go around finding other clockworks. I think for them to accept a clockwork as legitimate life with a soul, they would need to find a mechanomancer that they attempt to exercise that doesn't stick. A mechanomancer that does all that through the lens of Christianity. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, there's a few different ways you could, like, make it make sense in... I mean, we also see them repressing clockworks in... Well, um, clockworks show up in the um, Ascension of the Magdalene. And we see the Cecilites going up against them in that, too. There's a bit of a history of conflict here, I think. Yeah. And it makes sense, you know, making a clockwork, especially a human-like automaton, is kind of textbook-playing-god situation. Yeah, that's true. That's. I'd also see them being more open to unspeakable servants, because they're more immediately alien than, like, automatons, which are obviously imitating humanity. Mm, mm, mm. It does raise that question that exists within, like, um, Western philosophy because they do. There's an argument that the, one of the reasons why Pan is uh, accepts more robots and machines and things is because the conceptually it, it fits in with Shinto and everything having a spirit. They do reference in this book the fact that like um, anti magic religious groups have existed among the, the Shia and Sunni Muslims in history as yeah. well. Um, and, but the good thing about Shia, uh, about the good thing about Islam in terms of magic is the fact that like. Jin can be good or bad or neutral, so they don't have to yeah. take that. Jin can convert to Islam. It's really interesting. Yes, yes. So that that makes it a little bit more flexible for dealing with unnatural entities than Christianity. But I still feel there's still wiggle room. There's always wiggle room. Yeah. The way I kind of picture these guys, uh, as opposed to what we see in Thin Black Line and the Two E Core book. The closest they have to like a central location is this library church asylum they have in the French countryside, mm-hmm. where the sort of core community of Christian adepts live in, well, the closest thing to harmony you can have, a bunch of adepts, yep. and research um, Christian miracles and how that's manifested in ways similar to magic in the past, and also research demonology and shit, mm-hmm. and exercise adepts. Exercise in quotes. And then across the world, there's their larger network of gun-toting priests that, you know, they'll have a few in every country. One thing that could be interesting is, like, to change the position of the Cecilites a bit towards the unnatural by throwing up more extreme alternatives, like like um, very anti-magic, um, like, Pentecostal preachers in Africa, or, like, very, very conservative uh, Russian Orthodox it's going to manifest in different ways. And one of the reasons I want to emphasize that it's more of a network built around a singular pillar than like a proper institutional order mm-hmm. is because it means that in different, you can have your Cecilites in different locations have more of a local Christian flavor. Sure. What I'm talking about is more like putting the Cecilites in a position of like, they were the real anti-magic guys, but then the, the, oh, okay. some people come up like very strict Protestants or like very strict Orthodox or whoever and they're way worse, and they don't don't, they don't have as many um, 
for example, they like maybe the Cecilites will be like, no, fuck auto- automatons, but like these guys are okay. Like a typical servant stage are okay, or 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 non entities are okay. But then the, their equivalent in the um, evangelical movement or whatever is like, no, they're all terrible. We'll wipe them all out, and that makes the Cecilites step back and go, wait a minute, <laughs> this is this is too much, too much. I think the whole anti-supernatural organization is an important part of their identity that needs to be kept cool. in like any write-up. But you don't want them to just be boring burn the books. Mm-hmm. And you don't want them to be, we're hoarding all these artifacts for ourselves because then they're just the sleepers. So having them be this distributed network where the reason they are in conflict with the unnatural is just because it conflicts so heavily with their worldview. And if those instances of the unnatural can be shoehorned into their worldview with a bit of elbow grease they're pretty pretty welcoming i mean yeah if they could be like oh this is just this is avatars that's just um plato's idyllic forms and we've have a bit of platonism here somewhere which yeah, is like put yeah. it in there yeah shit like that adepts i think work unintentionally a bit better into their worldview than avatars do avatars they probably think are just pagans or some shit uh, well, unless they just be like, well, we could just canonize them, and then they're a saint, and it's fine. I think they should have very little actual power within the church. They shouldn't be that well equipped. I, I, but I, Yeah, that's true. But I think most of these guns they're towing are privately owned. It would be interesting, though, because there are so many avatars that have uh, Christian and specifically like saintly masks. Yes. For them to yeah. be like, the Cecilites know what's up, but they have to be like, hmm, okay, the rest of the church can't know about this. We have to tread cautiously. Like, they, they know that this one priest in a parish, he's just totally, a, like, or, like, a, a, commu- a, a community member, they're like, that's definitely a solid citizen, but we can't just murder this solid citizen. <laughs> we shouldn't just murder this solid citizen. They're a good Catholic. Hmm, how do we square this circle? Because, like, yeah, the Catholic Church has presidents for that where you can pray to individual saints and gain blessings from them. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, just frame it as that. Like, they aren't channeling the warrior archetype they're praying to the archangel michael i mean that that opens up the whole like when you bring the angels in it opens up a whole new can of worms but yes well no michael is also a saint he's the patron saint of warriors they made an angel a saint that seems like gilding the lily apparently you can do that it, it's sort of like getting an uh like a honorary university degree when you're already a famous scholar it's like okay thank you I mean, it's not like there's a limit of how many saints you can have, unless it's 333. Oh, uh-oh. I mean, there probably were a lot of saints in the invisible in the clergy during the medieval era. You have 333 saints, and then 333 anti-saints, and then what do you get? Dun, dun, dun. Going back to the whole loose network idea, what we see them depicted as in, like, books is that local bishops... When they find something that looks very obviously supernatural, they know what number to call. You know, if you're a bishop, you've been in Catholic circles for a while. You hear about these guys. Mm-hmm. You're encountering some supernatural shit. You give a library in Avignon a call. Then they call up whichever priest they have in the area. And if it's something really weird, they'll fly out some of their adepts or scholars. I just imagine this really small like parish somewhere. And a very conservative Catholic priest and he priest and something happens and he calls a number and he just gets a Zapatista and like a drunk French priest yes. who can make things fly around like that. A Zapatista, fun. a drunk French priest, and like and a psychiatrist. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. 
Uh, oh, per- yeah, see, like, this this is something that's a lot more interesting than what's written in either of the books, I think. Yeah, but it's, it's not too far from what's there, which is like... No, no, it's just emphasizing things a bit differently and mm-hmm. giving it more of a unique identity compared to a lot of similar groups you see in other urban fantasy games. Yeah, with a bit more flavor. And, you know, if you wanted to do a Order of St. Cecil campaign, this allows for a broader sort of character types now you can bring in avatars and adepts to a certain degree you just need to figure out how to get that character to be ultra catholic you can bring in psychiatrists and and, the, and a golem you could bring a golem he converted to catholicism it's fine command them with authority yes yes you know the fucking aleph on its forehead but with yes. like a fucking cross necklace <laughs> it's oh dear well, yeah, we got your number, Cecilites. You've been trying to portray yourselves as these uber well-equipped priestly badasses. But really, you're just, you know, kind of a loose confederation of uh, therapists and padres with a couple adepts thrown in there for good measure. But, you know, you still want to deal demons. That's a problem I can get behind. And you still want to burn most things, at least things that... Burn everything that isn't willing to convert, you know? Yeah. It works well. All right. So I think we've uh, we've covered the lights quite well. Yep. Yep. Oh, there's one thing though, Frank. One thing I've noticed. Mm. Um, you're sitting under the mistletoe, Frank. Oh no. We have to give the shippers what they want. Do we have shippers? Is it a thing? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well. Whatsoever. Enjoy the time with his family again. 